Good morning and welcome. And thank you again for the warm welcome I've received coming in this morning. Um, I have an apology to begin with, which given that the theme for today's service and our reflections for this morning are on the theme of repentance, I thought it was quite appropriate. But because the theme is repentance, it's not a Mother's Day service. And I've I wrestled with this during the week, and the only way I could think to tie Mother's Day and repentance together left me in such dodgy ground, I thought it was best left aside. <laughs> Except to say one thing. Last week, you considered the prodigal son. And in the story, you hear of the father who welcomes his son back with open arms and goes running out to greet him. Well, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, when the Lord cries out for his people to be repentant and talks how he loves those with a contrite heart and a humble spirit... He says, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. And I don't think there's any greater thing than to consider when the Lord compares himself to a mother. But as I say, today we are considering repentance, and so our call to worship is from Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is from the heart of a psalmist who's in a very dry place. And there are times in our lives when we feel that it's over. The world around us and the circumstances in which we live are not the way we think they should be. But then we also start to realize that we're maybe not the people we would like to be either. But when we gather, when we come together, we come together with a hope that this isn't necessarily how things will always be. The world is not going to remain as it is today. We are not always going to be the people we are today. Things change. We will change. And the hope is by the work of the Lord in our lives and the work of the Lord in the world around us, things change. At no point do we ever turn around and say, it's finished, it's over. And it's with that hope of new life that we gather. And this is the word of... Psalm 63, a psalm of David. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think through the watches of the night, because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth, and they will be given over to the sword and become food for the jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Let us stand now to praise the Lord, who is at work in our lives today, by singing hymn number 35, for your generous providing.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the God of hope, of new beginnings, of transformed lives and eternal joy, we ask for your blessing on our gathering today. Be not only with us, but be central to all that we do in our thoughts and actions. As we consider the work of your Son, our Lord and Brother, speak to us. By your Spirit, may we be changed and renewed. May we find our hope not only strengthened, but in places of our lives where it has been lost, may it also be renewed and restored. Not wishful thinking, Lord, but real reason to hope for significant change and light in the darkest places. Help us, Lord, to remain vulnerable so that we do not harden our hearts to one another, the world around us, or even ourselves. May we take comfort from your presence and our security from your guidance. Encourage us to keep going so that when the world around us has become as a heavy burden, we are able to let you take the load and that we would be refreshed. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings we have received and the many we have taken for granted. We have much to thank you for. May we not forget this as we now pray to you as your Son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our treasures, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from all, for thy kingdom,
Okay. I'm just going to set up a wee stall here. A very long time ago, when I was 14, right through to I was about 17 or 18, I worked on a fruit and vegetable. I know how this works. The guys would go down to London, and they would go to one of the markets, and they'd buy the fruit and veg, and they'd bring it back to the small market town I lived in, and they would set it up, and it would be a nice display, and obviously they then sell it. Now, they're making a business, they've got to make a living, so they're going to sell it at a bit of a profit. This makes sense, so... Now, I haven't really got to... They used to do these fantastic things where the apples would pile up high, and the bananas, and everything was shaped the right way. You might not realise it, but as much as nobody would come along till about 8 or 9 o'clock, we started putting those together at 1 o'clock in the morning. So it took a good 2 or 3 hours to put all those displays together. So when the wee little boy would run along and grab the first one out the bottom and they'd all fall down, you can imagine there was lots of highs. Now, so here we have got the wee fruit store, like I said. It's not a charity. Got to make some money here. Um, so I bought these up in Cumbernauld yesterday. Let's see. We're going to have put a few prices on. How much do you think I'd have paid for an apple? You think about 25p? I think that sounds like a fair price, but, but that was Cumbernauld. We're in the West End of Glasgow now. And it is Mother's Day. So, yeah. I think, I think if I'm going to... Just bearing in mind that where we are and everything else, I think I'll sell apples... Uh, five pounds each. That sounds okay? No? What's wrong? You think it's a fair price? Yeah, I think it's good. I'm not sharing the profits. Um, what about oranges? Any, what, how much do you think I'd have paid for an orange? Go on, what do you think? Go on. You think about four pounds? No, these are big and juicy oranges. I'm going to charge the oranges. I'm going to charge them at... Ten pounds each. Okay. You think? Ten pounds each? I've got about seven or eight oranges there, so that's about seventy or eighty pounds just for that bag of sack of oranges that are there. Okay. Right, we've got anyone going for the bananas. Now remember, the bananas have possibly travelled further than any of the other fruits. Now I didn't pay for it obviously, but bear in mind they've got gone. Fifteen? No, no. Yeah, Do you know, I'm going to do you. I'm going to say 50 pounds a banana. Right, now, do you just want to form an orderly queue? No? Right. No one wanting to buy any fruit? No? It's, it's expensive. Someone's offering to buy an apple. Quite happily. Six bananas. Did you get a lot of Christmas money? No. Okay. No. Why is nobody wanting to buy? It is so expensive. Yeah, it's so expensive. But am I doing anything wrong charging so much for a piece of fruit? Yes. You're saying yes? What's wrong? Huh? I'm not, it's not for the public. Oh, I'm robbing the public. So, but it's not against the law. This is how business works. You buy something and you sell it for more than you bought it. A bit over the top. So it's not that I'm making a profit. It's that I'm making an extortionate profit. Is that, is that a form of stealing? Mm. Mm. 
there's a few business people I'm sure sitting in here thinking, I'm really wondering where he's going with this. Okay. Don't worry, I'm going somewhere quite safe in the moment. For the adults, something that some of you may have heard of, and I'm not saying this is relevant for the younger folk. There's a guy in America at the moment who's making a lot of news because he's a businessman. And he does exactly what businessmen do. He buys things for a cheap price and sells them on. But he's got a lot of people upset because what he's buying and selling on are drugs, medicines. And the guy's name is called Martin Shirelli. Now, he's not doing anything illegal. But let me give you a couple of examples. There's one drug, and as you can imagine, there's been a lot of media uproar about this, but it's not illegal. Um, I need to check so I get the names right, right? Sorry. Yeah, the one drug, Tiapronin, it stops people from developing kidney stones. And there are some people who are prone to developing kidney stones and need to take this up to ten times a day. Okay, it's also been considered as a treatment for arthritis. Now, if any of you with medical backgrounds want to correct me on this later, this is fine. This is internet knowledge, and that is all. But the drug costs and was being sold for $1.30 a pill. Okay? Now, that seemed, I suppose, like a fair price. I'm very grateful to the NHS because, of course, we don't have to worry, at least when we're receiving the drugs, how much they cost. Martin Shkreli is a businessman. He doesn't sell something for how much it costs, he sells something for how much he thinks it's worth to the person buying it. Anyone want to hazard a guess as to how much something that cost $1.30 now is? Hmm? Ten, twenty dollars A bit higher? Not quite that high. On this occasion, this was his first time at doing this. $30. So something that was costing maybe... You know, for 10, we're costing $13, now it costs $30. Two and a half times as much as it originally was. But he's not doing anything wrong. So I think he's a businessman. He's buying things, he's selling it on. But it's funny how we all have a sense of what's right and wrong without it having to be against the law. Let me give you another case. There is a tablet that helps people that have a compromised immune system. Very, very useful to people that are suffering from HIV. Cost $13.50. Now, this is a life-saving drug, he argues. It makes a drastic difference to those who re- receive it. One pill used to cost $13.50. Does anyone want to know what it now costs? And it went overnight from $13.50 to the new price. Hmm? More than that. He put it up to $750 a tablet. His argument being that it saves people's lives. It's still a bargain. You're left wondering. He's arguing he's not done anything wrong. His, his, his solicitor's argument is his only thing he's done wrong is he's done it overnight. If he'd done it over a period of time, no one had noticed. And he got away with it. Okay, here's the question for the moment, because there are other questions we'll ask later. What do you think would be the right thing to do? What do you think would be the right thing for me to do with the prices of fruit? Hmm? Go on. So you'd expect me to put that down to about 50p each? Yeah. Okay. So about 50p each, that's a bit fairer. I think it's still quite expensive, but, you know, I'm more likely to make a bit of business profit there, that's fine. What do we think the guy that's selling the drugs at big prices should do? And obviously keep this... Yeah? Well, it's not only nobody will buy them, people's lives depend on them. 
that's, that's the difference. You can walk away from the fruit and go and buy your fruit elsewhere. But yeah, now, would anyone expect him to give the money back? No. But, in the Bible, someone did that. Who can tell me who in the Bible did that? Who in the Bible, it was charging people extortionate rates... And when he felt guilty, not only said sorry, gave the money back. And four times more than he'd taken in the first place. Free banana to anyone who knows the name. No? Go on. Yes, I heard the name. Yes. Yes, it was Zacchaeus. Yes. We have in the name. Today we're thinking about repentance. Do you want your free, free food? Oh, No. In the Bible, we read about Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and realized what he was doing was wrong. And he didn't just put his prices down. Now, he was a tax collector. He didn't set the prices in the first place. But he not only gave away half of everything he had, it says he gave back four times as much to the people he'd robbed in the first place because he recognized what he was doing was robbing. Repentance isn't just about saying we're sorry. Okay. Now, we are going to do a bit more with what I was just talking about when we consider the text later. But for the time being, repentance isn't just about saying we're sorry. It's also about then changing how we live our lives and also doing, trying to do something to maybe correct what we did before. Okay? Are we okay? Yes? Let's pray, and then we will sing. Sorry. Lord, when we are wrong, help us to say that we're sorry and help us to do what we should to put it right. Thank you that when we say we are sorry, you forgive us and love us like you always have. Amen. Let us worship the Lord by singing, Father, I place into your hands.
Our scripture this morning shall be found in the book of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. At that time, some people were there who told Jesus about the Galileans from Pilate are killed while they were offering sacrifices to God. Jesus answered them, Because those Galileans were killed in that way, do you think it proves that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, indeed. And I tell you that if you do not turn your, from your sins, you will all die as they did. What about those 18 people in Shilom who were killed when the tower fell on them? Do you suppose this proves that they were worse than all the other people living in Jerusalem? No, indeed. And I tell you that if you do not turn from your sins, you will all die as they did. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was once a man who had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. He went looking for figs on it, but found none. So he said to his gardener, Look! For three years, I have been coming here, looking for figs on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why? Should it go on using up the soil? But the gardener answered, leave it alone, sir. Just one more year, I will dig ground it and put, it, put in some manure. Then, if the tree bears fixed next year, so much the better. If not, then you can have it cut down. Second scriptures this morning is First Corinthians chapter ten, verses one to thirteen. I want you to remember, my brothers and sisters, what happened to our ancestors who followed Moses. They were all under the protection of the cloud and all passed safely through the Red Sea. In the cloud and in the sea, they were all baptized as followers of Moses. All ate the same spiritual bread and drank the same spiritual drunk drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ himself. But even then, God was not pleased with most of them, and so their dead bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, all this is an example for us to warn us not to desire evil things as they did nor to worship idols, as some of them did. As the scripture says, the people sat down to a feast which turned into an orgy of drinking and sex, 
we must not be guilty of sexual immorality as some of them were. And in one day, 23,000 of them fell dead. We must not put the Lord to the test as some of them did, and they were killed by snakes. We must not complain as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the angel of death. All these things happened to them as examples for others, and they were written down as a warning for us. For we live at the time when the end is about to come. Those who think they are standing firm had better be careful that they do not fall. Every test that you have experienced is the kind that normally comes to people. But God keeps his promise. And he will not allow you to be tested beyond your power to remain firm. At the time you are put to the test, it will give you the strength to endure it and so provide you with a way out. we pray Heavenly Father as we consider your word this morning may we not only heed the warning may we see clearly what is it you desire us to do to hear and to act and to be changed and in all this Lord we rely upon you Amen I realise it may have helped the children if I'd read the story of Zacchaeus out in full. But Zacchaeus, if you think of him as a modern businessman, going out, doing what you do in business, which is make as much money as you can so that you can live the best life you can, realised himself that by doing so, he deprived a lot of other people. And he himself called it robbery, which is exactly what you said. You're robbing the public. How did you feel when I told you about Martin Shkreli? And you might think it's unfair to pick up on an individual, but this is a real thing that's going on at the moment. Angry? Mm -hmm. Unfair? Unjust? Did you ever hear the words in your voice, there should be a law against it? We all have a sense of what is right and what is wrong that doesn't need to be told us. We know ourselves Without it being in the law, just because it's in the law doesn't make something right or wrong. How many of you have a mobile phone? Most of you. How many of you drive a car? Quite a few of you. Now, because we all drive cars and because of heavy industry, we need a lot of oil and petrol. That's made the countries that have the oil 
some of the richest countries on the earth. But the battery in your car and the batteries in our phones and the batteries in our laptops all need cobalt. And at this moment, most of our cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where it's being mined by people who should be at school. And where children, who are as young as six, sit and sift through rocks to try and find the cobalt to then sell on to the industry that gets, makes the batteries that we need for our phones and for our cars. Does that make us complicit? Is that our fault? Are we now the rich people that are exploiting the poor of elsewhere so that we can have the nice things and the fancy lifestyles and the comfortable living? It's not an easy question. And it's not also a simple scenario. I've, obviously, if we, if we were to look into the lives and everything else that goes on, there's 101 other questions and 101 other factors that come into being. But whilst we have a sense of right or wrong, there is also a stage where sometimes we realize that completely innocently, we are causing pain and suffering elsewhere that we're ignorant of. The world is not as it should be, but we are also part of that. We are also part of the population that buys and sells and so on. Now, I've picked on commerce when I could have picked on so many things, but I picked on commerce because I didn't want us to get too offended by some of the things we could consider. But just as we look at others and say they shouldn't be allowed to get away with that, there are things that we sometimes maybe need to rethink. Well, what are we getting away with? The texts that we look at this morning are both focusing on repentance. We live in this world that's not the way it should be, full of people that are not the way that they would want to be. And we'd like to think that as a church, here we are, we know Jesus, we have the answer to the world's problems. We have the answer to everyone else's problems. But that's not what the world hears. What the world hears us say is we have the moral high ground. You're all doomed unless you become like us because look at the mess you've made of the place but we're okay because we've got a ticket out of here. We're okay because we've become Christians and if you want saved, if you want out of here too, you can become a Christian. Has anyone seen the man that stands at the top of Buchanan Street and he has the banner that just says, Jesus is coming to send you to hell? I must admit, the first time I saw it, I was stopped in my tracks. I thought, this is horrific. What is he doing? And then I thought, I don't actually know which side he's on. Is he for or against? But the sad thing is, that's what the world thinks we believe. This distorted idea that somehow we're okay. Because we've said a magic prayer, we've been baptized. I know I shouldn't use the word magic prayer, but that's what it sounds like. If you repeat the following magic words after me, you will then have inherit eternal life. 
And I'm being quite crude about that because sometimes that's what people, we've reduced the gospel to. You're all going to die, you're all going to perish, but say the following words after me and you'll be fine. And here we read in the Lucan passage, Jesus standing up and saying that, repent or perish. You think, wait a minute, isn't this like the Jesus, well, it's a bit more akin to the Old Testament. Except Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Even if we struggle sometimes to marry that up. But what we completely miss when we think that's the message from Luke and the message from Corinthians is in both cases, Jesus and Paul are talking not to the unsaved, they're talking to believers. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to those that have given up everything to follow him. And he's telling them, repent or perish. Paul is writing to the church, not the people outside the church, he's writing to the church that are gathered on a Sunday morning, the ones that have been baptized and said the prayer, and told them, you must repent, you must change. And when we consider that, we cannot help but think, well, what is it that Jesus is telling us that we're the ones meant to be doing that's different? The repent or perish wasn't being said to those who didn't know any better. It was being said to those who should know better. When I was talking at work, even my friends who have never been inside a church all know the phrase turn or burn. They're very familiar with it. But let us consider the text. Here is Jesus. He's given what is the Lucan equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. And at the end of it, some people come up to him and tell him about these rebellious Galileans who have been slaughtered by Pilate. And if we read between that, it's as if they went to the temple. Now, there are some similar scenarios we can read of in Josephus and other places, but we're not actually sure exactly what had happened. Jesus was a Galilean. In places, he's described as a troublesome Galilean. The place had a reputation for them. So we don't know if the people are coming to tell Jesus this because either they were people that could have known Jesus, or they're saying to Jesus, you maybe need to be a bit more careful because Pilate's out to get you. But there was almost this attitude that if the Galileans had just behaved themselves a bit more and learned to temper what they say, they would have been okay. And Jesus is turning around and saying, no. Don't think that you're better than them because they got slaughtered and you haven't. Don't think that somehow you're better than them and they must have committed some horrendous sin. And so I believe that's why he brings in this case of an accident. There has been an accident where a tower has fallen and crushed people. Now, a nature, by its very nature, an accident is an accident. You can't tell someone, well, if you just hadn't been stood there, you wouldn't have been hit. People cannot be blamed for accidents that happen to them. So Jesus is saying, so if you think somehow because you're still living and you're still healthy, that somehow it means you've got a slightly more morally upright life and therefore only good things are happening to you. Now to a certain extent, the reason they thought like this is because they were Jewish. Now I'm not saying that to cast some sort of racial slur. Let me explain. All the way through the Old Testament, we hear of God choosing Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And the whole of the Old Testament, the predominant focus is God's relationship with Israel. They were his chosen people. They were his by virtue of birth. If they did his will, he blessed them, they had a bountiful land and they had the temple. 
When they went away from his will, they got cast out. People came and took over the land and destroyed the temple. So therefore, they recognized their relationship with God was very much reflected in where they lived and the well-being of the temple. They were not going to risk that happening again. They were at the most religious time they'd ever been. So if anything bad happened to them, it must be because the people deserved it. They'd allowed themselves to fall into this mindset that somehow when bad things happen, it's God's way of disciplining his people. And Jesus is saying quite clearly, no. But he says something that's a little bit scary because he doesn't just say, no, it isn't like that. These are just things that happen, but they're all now with me with my father. He doesn't go on to talk about heaven or any of these things. He says, no, but the same thing's going to happen to you unless you repent. And that is scary, particularly given that he's talking to people that by their very nature are following him. What does Jesus mean by perish? Well, in the translation we heard this morning, and actually in the majority of translations you would read, it simply means death. But if it just meant to natural death, then surely it would mean that if we led good lives, we'd all live for eternity as we are. And we know that that's not the case. We can repent and ask God for forgiveness as much as we like. The sad reality is we are all going to die one day. Some people have got carried away with this. And they come up with all sorts of things that the Bible doesn't say. We do know, towards the end of Revelation that everyone that has ever lived is risen from the dead. Everyone that has ever breathed appears before the Lord. Some inherit new bodies and go on to live in eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. Some die again. But never to be resurrected again. A death from which there is no resurrection. Hence, it's eternal nature. A death of the soul. They cease to exist. The people on whom the tower landed are dead. They're not still being crushed. The people who were slaughtered by Pilate are dead. They're not still being slaughtered. But why? Why this division? And why does Jesus feel the need to turn to the very people that are following him and say that? There's also another message going on here. Because Jesus then tells the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree, whenever it crops up, is telling us about Israel. It has always been symbolic of Israel, and it's one of those keys to understanding the text. And here we have a gardener who's looking after this fig tree, but it hasn't borne fruit. And Jesus is saying, if it doesn't bear fruit, it's going to be ripped up and destroyed. Because one of the problems that happened is here we have Israel. If you read in Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and all the prophets, why had the Lord chosen Israel? He had chosen them to be a light to the nations. He says on many occasions that as you glorify me, people will be drawn unto you. Because of the way you look after the fatherless, because of the justice that you look out. You protect the defenseless, you look after the poor. Because the very way they lived their lives was to be an example to the world of the community and of the kind of God that they worshipped. And they had reduced that 
to a list of sacrifices, to religious observance, to going to the synagogue. Meanwhile, people were still being taken advantage of. The orphans were still being left. The widowless, the poor. Justice wasn't being meted out. Basically, well, we're all familiar with the kind of justice that can be bought. And repeatedly we hear that through the New Testament. If you have the money, you can get away with it. If you don't have the money, you're going to get blamed for it. This was not the nature of the nation that God had chosen. This is not the nature of the God of whom we worship. It's also not the nature of the new heaven and the earth and the eternity that we desire to live in. And we need to hold on to that for a minute. Because here we have Jesus who gave up all to become human, to go through the temptations, to go through the cross, to be tortured, all so that we could have eternal life. This is not someone who seeks the destruction of anyone. This is not a God who desires to see any suffer. So we need to keep these in hand as we consider these things. But the nation Israel was not the light to the world that God had called it to be. And we do know that 40 years later it was destroyed. The Romans came and tore down the temple. And for 1900 years the nation Israel didn't exist at all. Jesus writes similar letters to the churches in Revelation. He writes seven letters in, Romans, in, in Revelation chapter 2, which John writes down and sends. And in five of them he says, I, I congratulate you on this, well done for doing this, but I have the following things against you, and if you don't stop it, I'm going to take away your lampstand. I'm going to close you down. Because you're not being the light to the world that you were called to be. Jesus is talking to Israel as a nation. Paul is writing to the church collectively. They are writing to a group of people. But how does a nation change? How does a church change? How do people change? So often, because we live in an individualistic society, we emphasize the community and the one body that God has called us to be. But at the same time, as we as individuals do not desire to change, then the community will reflect who we are. I do have answers for some of these questions, by the way. But if in case you're thinking you're just going to stir the pot here and then walk out. But let's consider Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul's letter to the Corinthians begins with a congratulations on how they lack nothing spiritually. They have all the spiritual gifts. They have been abundantly blessed. But then for the next 15 chapters, he does nothing but discipline them. He has a go at them because of their morals. He has a go at them because of their ethics. He has a go at them because of the way they treat each other. And as I've mentioned before, they were so busy trying to prove themselves that people around them were dying from hunger. People within the church were dying from hunger. And those that had didn't think anything of it. When they got together to, to worship, they shouted out over each other. They spoke out over each other. Because they'd fallen into that trap of thinking, I've said the prayer, I've been baptized, I'm now part of this church, I'm free from having to prove myself, therefore I can do what I like. And Paul uses himself as an example. He says, I discipline my body every day. 
He acknowledges right at the start, if you were to read the end of the previous chapter, that's what he's saying. He's saying right at the start, there isn't a day when he doesn't need to discipline himself. And this is why he equates back to the history of all these people that were saved from slavery in Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, went into the desert, were fed by manna, provided miraculously by the Lord, most of whom died in the desert and didn't make it into the promised land. Now, I don't believe Paul is making some comment here on the security of salvation. But in the same way that the Lord is saying to Israel, I'm going to give you a bit longer to see if you produce the fruit, Paul is saying, as a church, there is a reason you were called to be together. We live in a world that's not the way it should be. We ourselves as people recognize that we are not necessarily brilliant at everything we do. We say things that hurt people. We do things that hurt people. Sometimes completely without meaning it, other people suffer because of what we do. And we don't like it when we realize it. But the call in both these passages is to a change of life. See, if we are going to go into the world and say that Christ is the answer to your problems, that Christ can make a difference, that Christ is going to change things and there is a new heaven and a new earth coming of which we can be part of, it doesn't sound very real when we have no desire to change ourselves. When we say we look forward to that day where there is no more suffering, no more pain, and then we sit comfortably ignoring the pain and the suffering. How can we claim to desire something and to see something as the answer to the here and now if in the here and now we turn a blind eye. We build up our little wall around us to tell us everything's okay because at least in this circle I'm fine. To you, something you possibly even heard at Sunday school. How can the new heaven and the new earth be perfect if we were allowed to go in the way we are? I want you to imagine for a moment that the Lord, here comes the new heaven, the new earth, and we all just go and go onto the new earth as we are now. How long would it remain a new heaven and a new earth? And how quickly would it become the world that we know today? See, the reality is, if we will desire to enter into eternity, if we desire to see an end to suffering, an end to pain, to go to a place, then we have to desire to change. And that requires a choice on our part. God's not going to force us to change. He's not going to come upon us and say, right, I'm making you to be someone different. If that was the way God was, we would have just been born like that in the first place. That's why it's a choice. We have to choose it. But that choice bears fruit. If we do not desire it, then it's not going to show. In Jesus' rebuke of Israel, and in Paul's writing to Corinth, he's calling for repentance that today we would more consider call rehabilitation. Which we know is a lifelong process. We desire to live in a world without pain. So already we want to do things that reduce the pain around us. We desire to live in a world without suffering. So already we are desiring to try and stop the suffering that's around us.
Rehabilitation is a word more often used for people that have suffered from addiction of some kind or have committed a criminal act or something. As Christians, the word we use is discipleship. The desire to be more like Christ. And this requires a daily discipline. If we have no desire to say to be like Christ, then we cannot say to the world that we believe that Christ is the answer to anything because if he's not the answer for us, he's not going to be the answer to anyone else. It is a harsh message. It's a harsh text. I can't change that. It's possibly one of the harshest things the Lord says. But if each day we are able to say, today I desire to be like Christ. Today I desire to make a difference that is a blessing to those around me. And as much as I am able to do, I desire to do those things which enable people to be able to forgive and come together as community. I desire to be able to do those things that relieve suffering and relieve pain. And when we do those things... When we make those our priorities, then we will change. When our desire as Christians is to fulfill all the same desires that the world has around us, whether they be fleshly, whether they be financial, whether they be whatever, we're saying Christ is the answer, but whilst I'm living here on this earth, actually I still want the giant Mercedes and the several girlfriends or whatever, and I'm not suggesting anyone here has those things. But the world turns around and say, You hypocrites. You don't actually believe it yourself, so why should we? That's why the Lord, if we're to believe the passage in Luke, that's why Israel ceased to exist. If we're to believe the passage in Revelation, that's why some church is closed. Because at the heart of it all is the person of Christ, the one speaking. And individually and as a body, we are called to be as Christ. The good news is, of course, is that we can all be forgiven. And with that in mind, let us prepare ourselves for communion. We'll sing hymn number 98, One Bread, One Body. Oh, sorry. 45, my mistake, sorry.
Let us pray. <coughs> Loving God, we have gathered this day to worship you and to offer thanks for your love. We thank you that you have given us the right to, call, to be called your children. Help us in our homes to show that to show that love so that our homes may be places of love, security and truth. As we celebrate Mothering Sunday, we pray for all those who for any reason do not enjoy a happy family life. Please help men, women and children whose relationships are troubled. We think of parents and children who struggle to understand each other. We pray for those who suffer abuse from those who should protect them and treat them kindly. We pray for those who would love to have the opportunity to care for children but have not. And for those who, feeling alone and isolated, wish to be cared for by somebody else. We pray for those who are separated from their families and loved ones and for those who have no family. We also pray for the agencies which provide support to those in need. Bless all parents and all those who care for children. Strengthen those families living in difficult circumstances. Be with them all, Lord, and help us whenever and however we can to help them. But where no human love is found, may your love be known. We pray for those we know who are ill in body or in mind. Please be with and comfort those who are facing death or have been bereaved. And guide us to provide whatever assistance we can. Please help those working in medical services and also counsellors. Be with them all, Lord. We pray for people across the world who are suffering financial hardship, including those who seek work, and those who, thanks to diminishing pensions, can see no end to work. We think of people who go hungry, those facing natural disasters, and those suffering under oppressive regimes. We pray for people of countries where war is destroying lives and communities, for those who cannot escape, and for those who are strong and fit enough to flee. We pray for those who cause such catastrophes, and for the peacemakers and aid agencies. Help us not to lose hope and guide us to do what we can to find a solution to what are often complex and apparently unsolvable problems. Loving God, as we see the brokenness of our world, we pray for healing among the nations, where there is hunger for food, where there is oppression for freedom where there is pain for joy, that your love may bring peace to all your children. 
Finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves here in this church. We do not always know what others suffer or endure, but we know we should be ready to lend help as required. Please give us the insight to know what we should do, when to do it, and how to do it, with grace, sympathy, and humility. We pray that in this church all may find their true home and will be allowed to find a part to play in it. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for all that you have given us. For our physical lives and our spiritual lives. Thank you for the breath that we breathe. We pray, Lord, that you would accept these financial offerings and use them to glorify your name here in Hillhead. That you would use them where finances are needed that you'd bless them to achieve what you desire for them to achieve and that wisdom would be given to those who need to make these decisions. Amen.
Let us now sing communion hymn number 98. As we have just sang, this table is open to all who choose to remember and celebrate the sacrifice that Christ made. In the passages we looked at today, there were hard messages. And I must be honest at sometimes not being sure if I'm the right person to bring them. But this is when we look to Christ. That whatever we understand Christ meant by repent or perish, this is the voice of one who gave all, sacrificed all, so that we could have eternal life. And any, any can come. 
It is right as we approach the table that we take a moment to consider our own thoughts and our own deeds. That as we once again confess ourselves to the Lord, that we also pray for those to whom we maybe have not acted in a Christ-like manner. For those who may resent us being here. For those who maybe have not forgiven us. Let us take a moment to commit to the Lord those things he brings to our mind just now. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are plain is to God, is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but to giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... They are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And all this is from God, who reconciled himself, us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting our sins against them. As, and has, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The ministry of reconciliation, of healing, of forgiveness, of an end to bitterness, that we may be reconciled to God, but also find reconciliation amongst each other. When we receive the bread, we eat it as we receive and remember our personal relationship with the Lord. How we are individually reconciled to Christ. We individually are forgiven. But as we receive the cup, we celebrate that in that healing, in that forgiveness, in that restoration, we've been brought together into one body, one Christ. And we drink together. For we are reconciled. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we remember now the sacrifice of your Son, when he willingly, though not eagerly, allowed himself to be arrested and crucified for us. Lord, we may not fully understand why, and why that way, but we do remember, and we desire to live differently because of this. We thank you for the physical presence of this bread and wine, and for the fellowship we have with those gathered here today but mostly for the fellowship we know we enjoy with you because of this sacrifice. As we receive, Lord, may we understand a little more. May we know your presence a little more. And because of your forgiveness, may we be restored a little more. Amen.
Reconciled to each other and reconciled to our Lord. Drink the cup. Let us now stand to sing. Now we thank all our God. and renew us. May the one who is to come be made evident by us. And to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.